Hello, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. Today I'm speaking with author of Murder in Chicago County, Brian Johnson. I don't want to give too much away in my description, so I'll leave it for my conversation. Brian is a journalist in the Twin Cities and has more than 25 years of experience as a reporter. Brian, every Memorial Day you would go with your family, your grandmother, your great-grandmother, and you would visit the gravesite of the victims that you talk about in this book. They were your family members. Can you talk about that a little bit with us? Yeah, I just remember visiting the gravesite and, and just feeling a sense of sadness that this whole family was wiped out by what I believed at the time was just uh, an accidental house fire. And and as you said, it wasn't until many years later, in in the late 80s, uh, around that time, that I really started to dig into it and, and uh, discovered this whole terrible backstory. And what was this area? And I want to make sure I'm saying it right. So what's the name of the county? So it's Chisago County. And what was it and, like in uh, 1933? Well, it was, uh, it was a lot of uh, Swedish immigrants, first of all, had settled there, um, starting a big wave of immigration in the late 1800s or so, um, which is about the time that uh, the, uh, the, the Alvin Johnson's parents uh, arrived there. And uh, you had uh, it was a big farm area, a lot of uh, uh, kind of a um, distribution area for um uh, potatoes and, and things like that that would be um, shipped all over the country. Um, it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that in my research I learned that nobody just did one thing. Everybody wore multiple hats, it seems. Um, they had a, dabbled in maybe uh, the, the farming or maybe uh, had a hardware store or in the funeral business on the side. It was just kind of interesting that uh, a lot of the characters that I that I learned about in my research um, wore many different hats. But uh, but yeah, and of course this was this all happened in 1933, which was in the depths of the Great Depression. So um, as in many other, as in other parts of the country, uh, people were struggling to to find work and to um, support their families. So it was really uh, not not unlike uh, the nation as a whole during that time. It was a tough times there in, in the 30s. And what was, so Albin, he's going to be, he's going to be the husband to Alvira, right? So what was, right. what's his life like? And he's, he's a little bit older than she is. What's his life like before he meets her? And what is her life like uh, before marriage? Yeah, well, um, Alvin was, yeah, you're right. He was 14 years older than Elvira was. He was 43, and she was 29 at the time of the of the fire. And, um, you know, Alvin's kind of a mysterious character, even with all the research I'd done. I, I, I did. I, I couldn't find a, a, a great deal of information about him. He's just shrouded in mystery to this day, but I do know that his his parents, um, Ivo and Cecilia, both came from Sweden. Um, they settled in the United States in uh, the late 1800s, and, and they, they owned some land, and they, they merged their farms. 
And so Alvin had, uh, you know, I found some census records that showed he, um, he he went to school and he learned how to read and he his native language was English, even though his parents were both Swedish, which I thought was interesting. It indicated to me that they wanted to assimilate and they spoke English in the home. And um, But he, he worked as a farmer, a laborer, um, worked in the logging camps up in Canada, um, did uh, just made his uh, living by the sweat of his brow, basically. He was a big, strong man, uh, well over six feet tall, 230, 240 pounds, um, and just uh, he was kind of a kind of a rough, tough character. Um, he liked to drink. He liked to uh, sometimes to excess. He and his brothers were were kind of kind of rough characters. Um, so that's just kind of the general sense I, I have of Alvin, and, and uh, I, I think Elvira was just kind of a, a typical um, young woman who, um, you know, just uh, got married and had a family and wanted to raise her children and, and do the very best she could and, um, under some difficult circumstances. And, you know, what, what I understand about her is that she, um, she, she was very devoted to her family and, um, just uh, tried to do her best to get by in an often unforgiving world. And, you know, when you read a book like this, you try to, and I guess you can't help it, you try to put on your detective hat, you know, mm-hmm. and so you there's that photo that you bring up of him, and it is in the book, and I'm not saying he's mm-hmm. Rasputin by any means, but, you know, you can look at that photo mm-hmm. of Gregory Rasputin, and you can see there's something not right with him. I'm not saying Albin yeah. is Rasputin, but you can look at that f- class photo of Albin and see there's something there. Um, he has that mm-hmm. intense stare. And, of course, you know, there wasn't common mm-hmm. to smile in photos in the early 1900s or late 1800s. Right. Um, but there also seems like there could be, you know, maybe because I'm, I'm trying to think about how, how why would Alvira, you know, end up with him? Because, you, know, you know, there's a talk like Albin might have been a, a boxer because his dad was a boxer, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. maybe there was some type mm-hmm. of charm, you know, with him as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, you know, you're – I just – there's whenever I hear a story like this, I'm always trying to figure out, you know, who were these people and how how did their lives interconnect and intersect, and you know, mm-hmm. it's it, I don't know, it's you know, cause especially when something as tragic like this story happens. Yeah, it's a great question, and um, I, I'm not sure exactly how they met or what the circumstances were or what attracted her to him in the first place, but. But my guess is that she saw him as someone who could take care of her. And um, and actually, Alvin's parents um, were at the time considered um, sort of pillars of the community, I guess you could say. They they helped establish the local uh, Lutheran church in town in, in the 1890s. And um, they're respectable people by, by all um, appearances. And now you can debate that now, given what happened um, what we know now about how Emil Johnson, you know, Alvin's father, kicked the family off the farm in the middle of the Depression and and so forth. Um, you can certainly, um, I, I see that he probably had two sides to him. Um, but my guess is that Alvira just saw him as, as someone who could maybe take care of her. And, um, you know, maybe her options, maybe she believed her options were, were limited and, 
I'm, I'm guessing that I know the families lived close to each other, and so they probably met at some social function, a barn dance, or something of that nature. And mm-hmm. um, one thing led to another. So, yeah, so he was. You know, his father does kick him off the farm, and you even talk about how you know it, it, it could seem harsh to us and harsh to us in our time that we live in now to mm-hmm. see it that way. But he also needed to support himself and his family. You know, and his family. Um, mm-hmm. why, what were the economic reasons? Was there drinking involved? Why he would be kicking him off the farm? Well, what I learned is that Alvin was behind on the rent. Um, he couldn't pay the rent. In fact, he was quite far behind, according to at least one report. And there's some details about that in the book, but, uh, yeah, my guess is that, uh, you know, this happened in, in the spring, in April of 33, and um, my guess is that he said, all right, we'll give him one more winter, and then, you know, spring has arrived, and now now you're going to, we're going to, you know, evict you from the farm and let maybe let one of the other sons have a, have a shot at it. And um, there were different reports about um, some People told me that, uh, that the family didn't really have any place to go, but then I also read reports um, in period newspapers that uh, they had actually, the family had um, identified a new home near Rush City, uh, just a community close to Harris, and, um, and that one of the brothers had given them $20 to pay the first month's rent. So, um you know, maybe maybe it was just Alvin's or Emo's idea of tough love, and um, maybe he thought that would jolt him into, um, uh, I don't know, changing his ways. But, uh, yeah, he, he had a – I know that Alvin was out of work and had a tough time finding work, and, of course, that's not surprising given that this was during the Depression. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, uh, obviously the father felt that some changes needed to be made, so – well, how did outsiders who weren't in the family, what did friends see in the marriage, Do you would you say? Well, from what I understand, um, Elvira's um, mother and father, which would be my, my great-grandparents, um, they, they didn't approve of the marriage. They didn't approve of Alvin. And um, one part of the reason, I think, is because there was this great age difference, 14 years apart, and... I believe Alvira was maybe 19 years old or 20 when they got married, so she was quite quite young. And of course, that's probably not unusual, um, especially in those days. But you know, there there was a big age difference, and uh, she was the baby of the family. She was the youngest of four sisters, and you know, and I just get the sense that uh, just from talking to um, my my aunt Betty, who. was was actually around at the time when she was quite young, but in 1933 she she was alive, and she um, she had the sense that that um, you know Elvira's parents just uh, simply didn't approve of Alvin, and uh, so I, I, sorry, yeah, they didn't approve of Alvin, and and uh, were just uh, unhappy with the marriage, so. All right, so now we're getting to the uh, crux, the meat of the of the subject. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm gonna I'm gonna because I, I read the book, and this is gonna prove it to you. What happened on the mm-hmm. night of April 10th, or 
and or you could say into the early morning of April 11th, 1933, as best we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's when uh, that's when the farmhouse burned to the ground, uh, the, the the home of uh, Alvin and Elvira Johnson and their seven children. Um, from what uh, what happened is that a, a neighbor, um, a man named Ragnar Krantz, um, was the first to discover this fire. He saw that his uh, neighbor's home was on fire, and he um, and this happened. It was discovered around 3 a.m., and he immediately alerted the, the nearest fire department, which was in Rush City, and it was about, I believe, 20 minutes away, and um, they they got to the scene as, as quickly as they could, and some neighbors were there by the time the the, the fire department arrived. But uh, by then, it was too late to save any portion of the ground it, uh, of the house. It virtually had burned to the ground by then, and um, the uh, the authorities and the neighbors did a a search of the premises and, and the nearby um, all the. Uh, outbuildings and so forth, and um, they, they couldn't find any survivors, and it was uh, too too late to save any of the inhabitants. And, of course, later, um, I noted in the book, the um, investigators determined that the mother and children were, were dead before the fire, which, of course, um, was a, a huge uh, red flag that... Uh, and that they immediately suspected that Alvin Johnson was behind the uh, the, uh, the the fire and the uh, um, the murders because he disappeared and wasn't uh, seen again. Yeah, and if you read the book, you'll get the reference that I've made there because there is a discrete the April tenth or the April tenth and the early morning of mm-hmm. April eleventh reference there. That's the discrepancy between the dates there. All right, so mm-hmm. there's the fire. The children are—you can't save the children. They thought maybe they could have, but they didn't know they had already been dead for a while. In the mystery of the mm-hmm. book, now because we know there was a murder, obviously it would seem there was a murder. Mm-hmm. Is where is Alvin? Right. Did he do it? Yeah. Was the, you know yeah. how was the family murdered? Not were they murdered? Really, I don't think is how were they mm-hmm. murdered? Um, mm-hmm. And. Now we're and without giving anything away, you know who mm-hmm. and who was going about and what steps are being taken to find Alvin. Because if you find Alvin, the hope is you're going to find some answers. Right, exactly. And just to back up a little bit, um, you know, I, I certainly believe the family was murdered, and and the authorities came to that conclusion, but. Folks on Alvin Johnson's side of the family, especially one brother-in-law in particular, a man named Harry Galpin, um, adamantly um, believed that that, uh, that that Alvin had indeed died in the fire with everyone else and that it was just a, an accidental fire and that the authorities, for whatever reason, just simply botched it and got it wrong. But, um, but yeah, to answer your, your question, um, so after the fire... Uh, uh, a manhunt ensued. A posse of about 300 people um, got together and they, they searched all over the, uh, the, the, the farm premises, the surrounding area. They dragged the St. Croix River, which was nearby. Um, they extended the search all the way up into Canada. The, the, the Pinkerton Detective Agency got involved and offered a $50 reward. Um, 
for information leading to Alvin's whereabouts. Uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were involved. Um, there were Alvin Johnson sightings from Pennsylvania to Montana and then to Canada. And of course, most of those turned out to be false alarms, but who knows, Some there, there's also reason to believe that perhaps they were hot on his trail and uh, just never caught up to him and that he somehow maybe um, just, just uh, evaded the authorities and maybe started a new life somewhere, perhaps in Canada. And how far reaching was the news of this tragedy? I'm sorry, what was that? How far reaching was the news of this tragedy? Oh, my gosh, yeah, the news. Um, it was actually big news throughout the country at the time. Um, the, the wire services picked up on it. So newspapers all over the country ran stories about it. I, I uncovered uh, news stories in as far south as uh, Texas, um, you know, out east in Pennsylvania, and um, I was surprised to learn, too, I guess it shouldn't have been too surprising, given that the search for Alvin extended into Canada. But it was huge news in, in Canada as well. You know, not just, you know, 500-word stories buried on the inside of the paper, but huge front-page, top-of-the-fold banner headlines. Um, so it really, uh, the, the Canadian journalists really latched onto the story during when, when uh, the, the manhunt for Alvin was full steam ahead. And when, what year did you actually learn about this? So, um, well, as I said, I've known about the tragedy for many, ever since I can remember, since I was a little kid. But uh, it wasn't until maybe when I was in college, I would say in the late 1980s that I really started to take an interest in it and delve into it. And I started to research old newspaper articles. And I talked to my mother, who remembered the tragedy. She was 12 years old at the time, so she remembers when it happened. She's still alive, actually, 98 years old. Um, so, you know, I just, I was just very curious about it and, and um, did a lot of research. And in fact, my initial research led to an article that was published in a local paper called the Post Review in Rush City in 1992. And that, I think, started to sort of rekindle some interest in the case. Um, and since then, there have been other articles published, um, historical pieces about the case. Now, a lot of that has to do with the fact that I, I wrote this book, and, and there was some publicity about that before the book was even published. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, so I guess to answer your question, it's really in you know about the late late 1980s or so that I really started to to dig into it and to find out as much as I could about what happened. Yeah, and you had the ability to go back and. Look at other you know articles um, you know, pr from the time, but you did have some primary sources of people mm -hmm. too to talk to. For sure. Did you have yeah. any difficulty in talk? Was there anyone who you had to kind of, I guess, finesse uh, to get to talk to about it, or were people pretty open to talking to you? 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the people, first of all, my, my grandmother um, would have been obviously a great source of information. And she died in 2000. She was, you know, almost 99 years old at the time. So she lived a good long life. But Sounds like you, you have know, some pretty good genes in your family. Yeah, we do. We do, absolutely. Uh, um, so, yeah, my, um, you know, my grandmother just never talked about it. Um, and, and I honestly can't remember that I really broached the subject with her because I knew it was pretty sensitive. And obviously she was, she was very close to Elvira. They were, they were close in age and they were good friends. They were very, very good, very close to each other. And so I, you know, I never, I just know that she did not talk about it. And my, my great grandmother, Elvira's mother was, she lived to be a hundred as I noted in the book, and um, I remember her. She, I was pretty pretty young when she died, but I remember visiting her at the nursing home. And and um, as far as I know, she never talked about it. But you know, my mother has been surprisingly open about it and um, curious and willing to share what she knows. And and my aunt Betty um, was also a good primary source of information. And in the early '90s. Um, I also interviewed a couple of other people who who knew Alvin and the um, and the family. They had grown up in the area, um, and and they um, had some interesting theories about Alvin and what might have happened to him. So they were great primary sources of information as well. And just more recently, as I was writing the book, I made an effort to interview as many people in the community as well as, as I could. Um, people who, you know, most of them weren't around at the time because it happened so long ago, but everybody seems to have a story about it. Everybody up there in, in that part of the state who is aware of what happened and kind of knows the story, everybody seems to have kind of a theory about what might have happened or, um, you know, kind of personal stories, too, about how, you know, it affected them. So I thought that was really interesting, and I just love telling those stories in the book. Um, so it's really, it's, it's a true crime book, but it's also a story about how this terrible tragedy affected a community and uh, and loved ones near and dear to the Johnson yeah. and Lundin families. So, well, I mean, and the way you describe the county, too, is it's Americana in a way, you know, in mm-hmm. that yeah. this is not the type of place where this happens. And I know there's places all over the country where people would say that about their hometown, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we mm-hmm. have books about places all over the country where it's, you know, your classic American town and, pl- and things like this don't happen there. But you, we also have books about places all over the country where this does happen. Um, so yeah. it's, yeah, this is absolutely. that case. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great observation. And, um, you know, I think years ago, um, if you go back to the, maybe the 40s or 50s or 60s, people were much more reticent about talking about it. But now I think with the passage of time, people up there have come to, they're, they're a little more willing to talk and have, they see it more of a, it's, it's this historical event that happened versus something that, um, you know, just particular um, uh, 
affects their lives today. So, uh, so I think, yeah, I, I think years ago it would have been a lot more difficult to get people in the community to talk because it was such a sensitive subject. But you know, the the, the people who I've talked to in recent years are um, were, were just wonderful sources of information. And I, I really appreciated that they that they opened up to me. So yeah, that was probably the most interesting part of researching the book. Well, Brian, thank you so much for talking with me, and um, I'm glad your book's out. And it sounds like it's doing pretty well. And um, yeah. if you if you write another book, I look forward to talking to you again on the podcast. I would love to write another book for the History Press, and they they've been great and. I've done a number of events since the book came out, and they've all been very well attended. And, and uh, so, yeah, I'm pretty happy with that. Thank you for having me on the show, on the podcast. Thanks again to Brian, and thanks to you for listening as always. Murder in Chisago County is available now at ArcadiaPublishing.com and your local bookstore. Remember, you can reach me with any questions and episode suggestions by email at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. That's A-R-C-A-D-I-A author conversations at gmail.com. I'll talk to you again next week.